Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Do you have any travel plans yet this summer? Tribes and native-owned businesses are bracing for the rush of visitors throughout the summer months when school is out and families take vacations. A lot of native businesses also see the value in offering authentic experiences that also portray culture more accurately. And that has an educational outreach component for visitors. We'll learn more about the evolving nature of native tourism right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Advocates for clean water have reached a settlement with a North Idaho business over stormwater that's discharged into a tributary to the Spokane River. Spokane Public Radio's Steve Jackson reports. CHS Incorporated deals with transporting fertilizer and agricultural chemicals. The company was found to have violated a stormwater permit by allowing runoff that contained excessive sediment and minerals such as copper and zinc to flow into Rock Creek, a tributary of Hangman Creek. The Coeur d'Alene tribe and the Spokane Riverkeeper told the company they planned to sue, and after negotiations, a settlement was reached. Spokane Riverkeeper Jerry White says CHS agreed to modify a basin where the stormwater is collected. The company also agreed to put $152,000 into a fund that aids Coeur d'Alene Tribe environmental projects. Coeur d'Alene Tribe is doing amazing work and will do amazing work with this fund to actually intercept and stop pollution with the uh, creek restoration they're doing up above this facility. White says the work will help benefit Chinook salmon and red band trout. Both types of fish were hurt by the sediment and minerals in the plant's runoff. For National Native News, I'm Steve Jackson reporting from Spokane. A Cochiti Pueblo artist is showcasing his latest work at a museum in Colorado, using contemporary art to blend historic events with futuristic elements. Emma Vandenindy of the Mountain West News Bureau has more. The year is 2180. The New Mexican Pueblos are under attack by Spanish invaders. Two leaders in metallic combat gear, Omtua and Katua are going to each Pueblo to share the news about an uprising. That's the premise of Virgil Ortiz's Revolt, 1680-2180, Runners and Gliders. The new exhibit at Denver's History Colorado Museum blends augmented reality and futuristic fashion with more than 800-year-old pottery. It's an artistic expression that's based on the true story of the Pueblo Revolt of 1680. It's America's first revolution, but it's not called that or taught that because of the bloodshed. That's Virgil Ortiz, the lead artist on the project. His ancestors told him about the tribal runners and how they coordinated the revolt against the Spanish using knotted deer hide. At each Pueblo, they dropped up a knotted cord to all the leaders and they instructed them to untie one knot every morning. So on the, the day when the last knot was untied, then all the people rose up and pushed out the invaders. Experts call it the most successful indigenous uprising in North American history, even though it's been rarely taught in schools. I'm trying to educate globally about what happened to our people, the atrocities, the bloodshed, and eventually the peace that came after it, but using art. But this isn't your average exhibit. It explores the concept called slipstream, where events in the past, present, and future are occurring at the same time. 
Ren Batista modeled for the exhibit. We've got this awesome silver crocodile uh, skin pattern chest piece on with a spiky sort of headdress coming out of the back, and it's all very sci-fi and transformative. The exhibit also features a projection room with colored lights, indigenous symbols, and characters searching for artifacts. Batista says the layout of the exhibit shows that indigenous history transcends time. That heritage has survived on despite the violence, despite the colonialism against them. And so to see it finally being socially relevant, to see voices like Virgil's being highlighted by history centers is such an awesome turn of tides. For National Native News, I'm Emma Vandenindy. Tune in tomorrow for part two to hear how the exhibit has made an impact on visitors. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by BNSF Railway, proudly supporting the nation's economy by moving the goods that feed, supply, and power communities across the country. More at bnsf.com slash tribal relations. Support by Ramona Farms, offering wholesome and delicious foods from our heirloom crops as our contribution to a better diet for the benefit of all people. We are honored to share our centuries-old farming and culinary traditions online at RamonaFarms.com. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. The Memorial Day holiday unofficially marks the beginning of peak vacation season. It's the busiest time of year for tribal tourism. In this hour, we'll talk with Native tourism experts on the importance of sharing truthful and authentic cultural experiences and stories with visitors. We're not talking about foreign-made headdresses and plastic dream catchers for sale at gas station gift shops along Route 66. We're talking about Native-owned and operated tours, shows, activities, and lodging. We encourage you to join the conversation, too, by telling us about your local tourism industry. Are you happy with how your native culture and land is represented by local businesses? Give us a call at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. And later in the show, we're sharing a special preview of the latest in a series of shows by MSNBC. The show's host, Alyssa London, will tell us about her installment of The Culture is Indigenous. Stay tuned. We've got three guests on our day to talk about native tourism. First, joining us from Albuquerque, New Mexico, is Sherry Rupert. She's the CEO of the American Indian and Alaska Native Tourism Association. She's Paiute and Washoe. Sherry, welcome back to Native America Calling. Thanks for having me, Sean. You bet, Sherry. And joining us from Cherokee, North Carolina, is Laura Blythe. She's the program director of the Cherokee Historical Association. She's also a member of the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians. Laura, welcome to NAC. Hey, y'all. Thank you for having me. Great to have you, Laura. And joining us from Albuquerque, New Mexico, in the studio is Richardson Etzidi. He's the CEO and founder of Antelope Hogan Bed and Breakfast and the CEO and manager of Antelope Hogan Canyon Tours. He's Navajo. Richardson, thanks for joining us, and please introduce yourself further. Good morning. <clears throat> My name is Richardson Etzidi. 
um, Navajo and Diné from the Page in Lachii, Arizona. Um, I'd like to introduce myself in the, our Navajo and Diné language. We say, and this is how it goes. We say, so that's basically introducing myself in the Navajo language on who I am and where I come from. From the family within the area that we call Antelope Canyon. The upper portion and also the lower Antelope Canyon. Thank you very much for having me on your podcast show today. I really appreciate your time and and, and loving every every time of it. <laughs> okay. Well, Richard, thank you for joining us and really appreciate that introduction as well in, uh, in your native language. It was beautiful. Appreciate it. Sherry, I want to go ahead and start with you today and uh, tell us first, what excites you the most about the native tourism industry as a whole as we move into the summer of 2023? I think as a, a whole, uh, the native tourism industry is, is amazing. Uh, it's it's um, really quite an honor to be able to be in this position and to be able to work with tribes and small native-owned businesses across the country um, that are working so hard um, to tell their stories, to share with uh, visitors, as we have for hundreds of years, um, who they are as a as a people, and uh, just to see the diversity and and uh, everything that's being created um, is is just amazing. Earlier in the intro, I mentioned the dream catchers and, and and the tourism, you know, the old trinkets and things like that from back in the day. But it just seems like we have come a really long ways with regard to the authenticity of native tourism. Would you agree with that, Sherry? I do. I definitely agree with that. And um, it's, it's, it's so important and it's what uh, travelers are looking for. You know, we do um, see a lot of research and, and we work with a lot of the, the federal agencies and partners that um, have information on visitors coming from international um, places and, and um, you know, some of the, the top things that they're looking for are are those authentic uh, experiences. And so I'm always um, so excited to meet them because I get to talk about um, the 574 tribes and Native Hawaiians in this country um, that are also very diverse, not only in their, their cultures, their language, um, their government, uh, but also in the um, diverse, authentic experiences um, that they have to offer. Well, Sherry, you work with so many tribes all over Native America. Tell us, what are some of the cool things that tribes are doing, Native communities are doing to, to provide these authentic experiences to tourism, like you described? Well, as you know, we've, we've been around for thousands of years. And I think that what makes Indian country so special is that we are the first people of this nation and uh, that we do have the history uh, we are connected to the land and the waters, um, the animals um, that surround us. And only through that connection and that relationship can you find authenticity. And so um, there's just so much out there. It's just hard to, to pick a few. 
Um, but, you know, some that come to mind are uh, the, the fact that the Yurok tribe in Northern California has developed their uh, redwood canoe tours, and uh, you get a, a native guide on one of those redwood canoes that has been um, dug out by um, someone from the tribe, a carver from the tribe. Um, they believe that that canoe is a living being, and as you're going down the Klamath River, they're talking about their people, their connection to the water, the land, the salmon. Um, they're talking to you about the, the canoe that you're in and how it has, has kidneys, how it has a heart, how they take care of it, um, how they've reintroduced the California condor. I mean, it's just um, a story that you can't get anywhere else. And then That's I also a, think of... It just sounds amazing. Please continue. Yeah, definitely. When I describe these to, to travelers, uh, they're just in awe, you know, thinking, you know, I have to go experience that. And I always tell them, where else in the world do you get to experience that? You know, going down the Klamath River in a Redwood Canoe Tour with somebody telling stories that are thousands of years old. You just can't get that anywhere else. Um, no. And then I also think about... Um, Again, um, California, the um, Agua Caliente tribe in Southern California, and uh, their beautiful uh, cultural plaza that they are developing. Um, they've opened their spa in April um, on the site of the original spring that Palm Springs is named for. That is on tribal land, and uh, they're going to be opening their it's about 48,000 square foot uh, cultural center and museum on that site here in the next uh, few months. Um, so I'm really excited about um, being able to experience that. But just finding ways, really uh, unique ways in which to share uh, the culture and the language um, is what we offer. Mm hmm I was down in Agua Caliente a few years ago, and I know they also have a, a really, really beautiful area where you can walk just for a long, long ways and in that big canyon, and there's just all kinds of really cool stuff to see, uh, wildlife and plants. So this is just really, really interesting, Sherry. And um, of course, I mean, you know, when you look at the tourism industry and how it's evolved and, you know, thinking of some of these cultural types of events, what about also just for folks that just want to go out and maybe hang out and just, you know, play golf or, or maybe stay in a nice hotel, but still want to be able to see some of these more authentic venues and things like that. Are there options for those kind of folks too? Oh, definitely. Definitely. And, and you know, we're seeing more and more casinos, uh, tribal resorts adopt uh, more cultural offerings. Um, you'll see, you know, many museums inside uh, their venues. Uh, but for for those that um, you know want to go out and explore, uh, we really try to direct them to NativeAmerica.travel. It's kind of a, a one-stop shop for, for Indian country. And you go there, um, you'll see that um, you can find offerings and experiences um, that you're talking about uh, right there by region. And uh, so if you're, for example, um, going to be in the, the Northeast, uh, part of the country, you can pull up that section of the country and you can see the tribes that are there and uh, some of the offerings that are available 
uh, for them to, to take part in. Well, that sounds like a really valuable resource for sure. Folks can just uh, find out more, learn more on the internet. Uh, Laura, I want to ask you, uh, and again, you are the program director of the Cherokee Historical Association. How large is the tourism industry in Cherokee compared to its overall economy? How large? I'm sorry. Yeah, like what percentage of, of the overall Cherokee economy goes to tourism, and then what is what other industries? Is, is it a pretty significant chunk there, tourism in Cherokee, North Carolina? Well, Cherokee was actually put on the map by tourism. It was a uh, it was almost 100% tourism that funded the town and the economy up until around the early 90s and then of course we have we have our um we have our casino that has come in and so now, you know, a lot of focus has been on half tourism, half gaming. Half tourism, half gaming. Okay. Well, we're going to talk mm-hmm. more so- with with you, Laura, we're going to have to take a short break here, but I want to definitely talk more and learn a little bit more about the intricacies of the tourism industry there in Cherokee. And of course, we have Sherry on the line as well and, and talking about her work with the American Indian and Alaska Native Tourism Association. And of course, we have Richardson Etsidi in the studio. And uh, Richardson is a business owner who specializes in, in culturally relevant tourism experiences uh, there on the Navajo Nation. So we've just got a really good lineup of guests here are going to fill us in on just the ins and outs of, of what's going on here as we move into the summer of 2023. Time sure does fly, but we're going to talk about how the native tourism industry is uh, going about getting people involved and interested in Indian country going into the summer months. So folks, stay with us. We'll be right back. A proposed Denver project would offer affordable housing that prioritizes Native residents. It would also include a Native health clinic and other programs that are all aimed at combating the disproportionate number of Native people experiencing homelessness. We'll look into that and similar projects elsewhere with Native residents in mind. That's on the next Native America Calling. OCO. You look after everyone else. Look after yourself, too. Check out these health care resources for women and at all stages of life. For more information, visit go.cms.gov slash women's health checklist. A message from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking about authenticity and native tourism today. Do you feel your local tourism industry does a good job of promoting native culture, art, and history? Let us know at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. One of our guests today is Laura Blythe, the program director of the Cherokee Historical Association. And before break, Laura, you explained that uh, tourism is a major driver of the local Cherokee economy. So Tell us more. What kind of experiences and, and events are available there for visitors in Cherokee? So through the Cherokee Historical Association, we are the um, umbrella for two venues here in our cultural district. We run the Mountainside Theater, which holds the outdoor production of Under These Hills, widely known outdoor theater um, show that's been here for 73 seasons. 
And then we also do the Okona Lefty Indian Village, which I'm more heavily invested in because that is more of the living history museum. You get to talk to interpreters and see what true Cherokee culture culture is like. Of course, we have the Museum of the Cherokee Indians, and we have a couple of other cultural partners in the area. But we have uh, our streets in certain areas lined with the gift shops on the side, so if people come in, they can... They can walk through the downtown area, look in some of the local shops. Some of them are are owned by local folks, and then some are leased um, by people who are not from the area. So, you know, and then our ecotourism here is growing. So we have a couple of different facets that are coming along. You know, we have the gaming on one end of town, but we're here to meet this mark and perpetuate our culture and get true facts about who we are as Cherokee people um, to the guests that come into town. But, uh, you know, they can find just about anything here. We're on the border of the Great Smoky Mountains Park. We have hiking. We have a lot of outdoor nature trails. We have mountain biking trails. So we're trying to grow and expand to open it up to an even more diverse um, tourism uh, demographic. Laura, you mentioned that... uh the uh the live performance in the evenings there in the, in the outdoor amphitheater there uh the drama as it's often referred to there in Cherokee it's it's been around over 70 years so i imagine during that time it's probably changed a lot in terms of of the authenticity and how Cherokee history and culture is presented to visitors can you talk about that oh absolutely um whenever it was, whenever it came in the first the, the first show was put on stage in July of 1950 and it was written by Kermit Hunter. In that show, it was people learned kind of from Hollywood what the perception of being native was supposed to be. Um, talked really slow and spoke about themselves in the third person as opposed to the as, as opposed to first person, you know. And so those were elements that were in the show. Then it was a lot longer. It was approximately a three-hour show. Um, a lot of pageantry, um, and there weren't very many um, lead actors who were Cherokee, but still trying to tell our story. And throughout the years, um, it had to evolve. And now we have we have the original script on stage. However, the narrative has changed. Um, we, everybody speaks in first person. They have conversations um and we also added elements to have our language uh spread throughout the script that way while the audience is there they can actually hear the Cherokee words for certain things and then also the English so it kind of gives a good healthy blend with putting our culture and our language and our our social dances um into the show to make it more our story and not an outside perspective on what our story should be, if that makes sense. It makes a lot of sense, Laura. And going back uh, to the early 1950s, I'm I'm thinking perhaps there might not have been a lot of Cherokee people involved in the drama in those early days. And I imagine now that's changed. There's a lot more local input and, and cultural advisors who can really provide that level of authenticity and credibility. Yes. I, you know, over the past decade, um, just viewing the show, we actually did not bring the old script back on stage. Uh, it had a bunch of revisions and revitalizations, and then 
one year it was complete this was before my time at CHA but in 2017 we brought the original script back and that's when we made the adjustments to um, what information was not quite how it should be told or not exactly what happened and so we've actually put more truth to the story um, and I believe it's been very well received. We actually talked to our cultural partners on how can we do this. We talked to elders and we talked to other people in the community of are we doing this correctly? We're doing our research on the back end to make sure that we're producing accurate information. And of course, it's still an outdoor theatrical production. So it still has the flashes and the flare and the dances. But we've been able to infuse a lot more of our true cultural um, beliefs and languages and traditions into it. I've had it, I've had the pleasure of, of watching that drama production several times, and it, it, it's a top-notch performance. It, it's certainly entertaining, and there is a, a lot of that flash and pizzazz, but it's also really moving, and it just really gives a, a, such a, a valid and thorough explanation of the history and culture there of your people. So appreciate and, and just applaud you all for, for moving with that project and just keeping it going for all these years. And Laura, tell us a little bit more about the, the living history, the village there, the Oconolefti village where you have folks that are there demonstrating different periods of, of Cherokee life. And d does that go back uh, pretty far as well there on in the Kuala boundary with regard to how long that's been operating? It does. Uh, the drama, we Cherokee Historical Association opened the drama in 1950, and then two years later, the Okanalefti Indian Village opened. So it's been open since 1952, 71 seasons, continuously. Um, we were the one lone attraction open, um, even in COVID, the COVID year, um, but we're an outdoor attraction. You know, we were able to do the spacing and the open-air elements. Um, and so 71 continuous years, so we're two of the oldest venues in town, and we were, we were created for Cherokee to drive tourism um, to our town at that time. And it's been rolling ever since. And at the village, that is where you can go in, you get fully immersed in to a time period throughout our history. And actually, to me, it is more than just a specific time period. We have replica housing in there that shows what we lived in pre-contact, why we had to transition to this type of home style. You know, a lot of people believe that all Native Americans live in teepees. That's just kind of an image that everybody has for Native Americans. Well, here at the village, we tell them we're, we were an agricultural tribe. You know, we had homesteads. We set up, we lived in houses prior to contact and people coming in, they could see our villages. And so this is kind of how it's set up. We have artisans up there demonstrating traditional crafts. We have delegates who speak about um, how we made these crafts, why we made these crafts, what they were used for, and kind of how they've transitioned throughout history. What were the original materials that we made our baskets with? And what kind of materials do we use today, you know, for contemporary reasons? Um, so they get to see a whole 
living, breathing timeline of who we are as Cherokee people, fully immersed. You get to talk one-on-one to a person, and any of those questions that that you have that you don't know where to find that answer, it's our goal to be able to have that answer for you or to at least know where to point you for a correct answer. Well, Laura, thank but you for all those. Really... Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, well, yeah, no, I mean, it is, it's a, it, I've had the pleasure of seeing that village as well. And it's, it's just an amazing experience there. You really do feel like you're going back in time to those different eras of, of your people's history. Thanks, Laura, for, for those insights. And I do want to go to Richardson now, who is in our studio, uh, CEO and founder of Antelope Hogan Bed and Breakfast. And Richardson, I got to tell you, that sure is a catchy name, Antelope Hogan Bed and Breakfast. Tell us more about your businesses. <clears throat> Good morning, um, so Antelope Hogan Bed and Breakfast is more of an authentic location where a lot of our family, you know, reside and, you know, go back from many generations within that area. And before Page was developed back in 1957, you know, a lot of our family members and all our family that live right in that area, you know, we, we, we definitely, you know, continued to do a lot of the authentic and the original, you know, things that we do as Navajo and also Diné people. And uh, one of the biggest things that, you know, that, that we see right in that area is, is definitely tourism. And, and the Navajo people try to give, and, and also the Diné people, you know, we, we definitely try to do everything we possibly can for all of our visitors that make our way um, through this location. And, and, the, and this location um, that we live in, you know, we get about about 8 million people every year. Mm. But during this pandemic, you know, that was one of the worst, you know, um, that, 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 that really affect us. So we were closed for those 17 months. And, you know, one of the biggest things, you know, that we still continue to do is, you know, give all our audience and, you know, our visitors and our guests that do stay with us right there at, at, at the Hogan Bed and Breakfast, and not only that, but, you know, we're, we reside right there of, of one of the famous uh, slot canyons known as Upper Antelope Canyon and also Lower Antelope Canyon. So as a family, you know, we, we, we reside in that area and we continue to do and, and serve a lot of our visitors and guests that do make their way there. And, you know, we try to do as, as much authentic uh, things for them, you know, from guiding, you know, staying with us giving them the, the culture of food, giving them the cultural experience, and having that one-on-one with a lot of our Navajo guides. You know, a lot of our Navajo mm-hmm. guides do take that pride, um, give them the, uh, give them everything that they have to offer to all of our visitors. Well, Richardson, the opportunity for a visitor to spend the night in a Navajo Hogan, that is certainly a very authentic experience for sure i mean how 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 in depth is it i mean do people actually haul water and things like that too or do you have a few amenities in those hogans to make people a little more <laughs> at ease so so a, a lot of our visitors that do do make their way through you know um this location that we have with a uh, bed and breakfast you know it's a traditional navajo female hogan you know res- resembling of a woman being pregnant for nine months and these homes you know what we call a you know, the female home where families come together and, you know, and it's one big room where, you know, they have no electricity, no running water, 
and all our visitors love it and they really enjoy <laughs> that Navajo and Diné, you know, uh, uh, um, just, just being part of it, you know, and we want to give them that full experience. And, you know, a lot of them that I have, you know, these past couple of days, they, they love how quiet it is. Um, they, they, they're giving that opportunity to be on the Navajo land and, you know, you know, we're, 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 we're permitting them to be on the land so that, you know, they can be with us. And we want them to get that, like I said, we want them to get that full Navajo and Diné experience. I mean, bed and breakfast, Richardson, they're all over the country and usually, you know, like kind of like older homes, historic homes. And what inspired you to, to try this as a business, opening up traditional Hogans for tourists to come and stay in? So, so back in 2018 is when we, we, we actually established the bed and breakfast. And this year we actually started the Antelope Hogan Canyon tours. But the, the bed and breakfast, um, you know, is it, 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 you know as a child you know growing up in this excuse me um in, in in this in this area you know where all our our family you know reside and you know growing up in a Navajo Hogan you know in, in these female Hogans you know where a lot of my siblings and you know my brothers my sisters and and just being you know part of it you know as a everyday life and it's a it's a it's a beautiful thing, uh, and uh, you know, growing up in it, learning everything about it, mm -hmm. it, it was really inspired me. You know, to continue, you know, this uh, culture of ours. Yeah, Richard, I really appreciate you coming in and, and sharing this uh, this vision, this dream. That sounds like that you folks uh, turned into reality. Are there other bed and breakfasts in operation there on the Navajo Nation? Or are you folks the only one? Uh, no, we actually have uh, quite a few family members that do uh, the bed and breakfast. Um, so you have more of a luxury. Um, you have places where you can stay with uh, teepees. Um, and then, but for us, we're, we're, we're just strictly female hoguns. That, that's all we do. You know, that's more, you know, respecting, you know, Mother Earth. And, mm -hmm. and so, you know, I have family within that area. Um, you have Shashtanea. Um, you have uh, Mystical Canyon with their, their campground, um, what they call, I think it's Arrowhead um, Campground. Um, but, you know, I, that's, that's, that's uh, I have an uncle and then my, uh, one of my cousin's sister's that do uh, the bed and breakfast and uh, you know we try to share as much as we can you know like I said we, we definitely try to help out one another and um, you know try to give the exposure to you know everybody else that does that um, at the, the Navajo authentic experience you know right there at the right there on the Navajo Nation you know letting them stay with stay, staying with us. And was it expensive to, to get it the business up and go and get those hogans where they needed to be and built the right way or yes yes yeah. yes definitely so you know the way these uh the, these hogans are built you know they're, they're 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 structured in a certain way and you know a lot of our navajo and you know Diné homes you know they all face toward the, face towards the east you know respecting the sunlight and and having that light come into our into our home you know and 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 definitely the way uh, these homes are structured, you know, it's it's a nine-sided hogan. So um, um, 
and and the, the nine is resembling of a woman being pregnant for actually nine months. Nine months. Uh, just just fascinating. Uh, listening to our guest today. Again, we've got Sherry Rupert on the show from the American Indian Alaska Native Tourism Association. We've got Laura Blythe from the Cherokee Historical Association in North Carolina. And, of course, in studio, Richardson Etsidi, who is the CEO and founder of Antelope Hogan Bed and Breakfast and uh, Antelope Hogan Canyon Tours. So both uh, bed and breakfast and tour guide as well. Anybody who would like to give us a call today, you've got a question, maybe you've thought about starting a bed and breakfast in your community or just have insights regarding native tourism what are you waiting for we've got open phone lines we're ready to go our producers are standing by that number is 1-800-996-2848 let us know what you think about native tourism and here in 2023 what you'd like to see give us a call we'll be right back Challenges to societal harmony abound. Trauma, depression, addiction. In Native communities, these challenges affect nearly everyone. The Native American Social Work Studies Institute educates social workers for careers to address the needs of Native communities. You can be part of the solution as a peer support worker, community health worker, or a counselor with culturally relevant training from the Native American Social Work Studies Institute. Info at online.nmhu.edu. New Mexico Highlands University supports this show. Thank you for tuning in to Native America Calling. We're going to now get a preview of an upcoming show produced by MSNBC and airing on the Peacock Network. Our audience is familiar with Alyssa London. You've heard her as host of this show before. And she is now hosting a special production called The Culture is Indigenous. It's part of a series of shows that celebrate women of color. Her guests include names like Amber Midthunder, Kimberly Teehee, Representative Mary Peltola, and Crystal Echo Hawk. Alyssa is Tlingit and joins us now from Los Angeles, California. Alyssa, you've been away too long. Welcome back to NAC. Always great to speak with you, Sean. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm doing really well. Thank you again for joining us. And uh, wow, this series is just so exciting. Tell us, I mean, what got this whole project started? I believe it's an initiative that uh, Rashida Jones, and uh, who is the first uh, black executive at a major uh, cable news network, um, it was part of her initiative to want to have more diverse content on her network. And I'm so glad that they decided to have an indigenous special. And they picked you to, to host it. So how Apparently, exciting was yeah. that? <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was very exciting. I, I know that uh, they listened to a few of my Native American colleagues' shows, so they, they could tell that I had the ability to to speak with uh, different uh, Native leaders across Indian country, so I think that was part of the vetting. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad to hear that, for sure. Wow. And it's just a, an A-list of Native women you have assembled here, Amber Mid-Thunder, uh, Kimberly Teehee, we just had her on the show the other day. She's a Cherokee Nation delegate, desig delegate designate and uh Jane Myers from from Prey. You've got athletes and just influencers, uh, elected officials. I mean, were you involved with with choosing these specific women for the show, Alyssa? Yes, to an extent. I made a, a little can Canva PowerPoint with my dream cast, and 
uh, actually got to speak with Art Hughes, the you know, producer of Neighbor Calling, about the, the different ideas. He was very helpful throughout the process, good friend. And some of the women that I initially pitched to the um, producer team at NBC uh, were available and able to come to the show. And other ones, the uh, NBC team was able to to book and so it was a collaborative effort but I'm very proud that I got to sit at a table with those amazing women that you mentioned. Alyssa let's hear a short excerpt from the show this is a discussion for dinner among seven women and yourself and this particular exchange is about identity and we hear first from Janae Kasanovoid who's a track and field athlete then we hear Crystal Echohawk from Illuminative and then Cherokee Nation congressional delegate designee Kim Teehee. So when I was growing up, a lot of my classmates were non-native. My classmates didn't necessarily understand about native people because I wasn't dressed in regalia. They didn't think that I was native or because I'm lighter skin. What are some thoughts on how we can help educate the kids today about what do they call us? Any thoughts on just even the way to refer to, to us as indigenous people? Janae? My mom was white and my dad was full-blooded Comanche and so I was kind of just losing a sense of identity and who I am and where I came from and it was took it on me and losing my father at a young age to kind of have that search and to learn the correct history and to learn about Comanche Nation but it was always a checkbox to college or health forms medical things what is that checkbox and for me it's just been Native American American Indian that's who I am and how I identify myself it's so interesting because that is one of the first things Americans just like walk around on eggshells around us like what do we call you guys and they Mm -hmm. don't quite know and so back in 2020 we actually did a national survey called the indigenous future survey and we pulled almost 6,000 native people from all 50 states to ask like how do you want to be referred to and the number one answer across the board was first by my tribe right people first and foremost want to be identified by their tribal nation because more and more it's just really showing people that we aren't a monolith. We have such unique cultures and language and, you know, histories. The schools you were just talking about, nearly 90% don't teach about us past 1900. So it's literally the American public can't even really think about us in a contemporary context. You have one textbook picture of what a Native American looks like and that's not how it is today. That's true. I think also sometimes there's this duality. I grew up in a household where my parents are Cherokee first language speakers, where there's great pride in your culture and your heritage. And then in the public school system, where a high school counselor is not telling me how to get to college because, you know, she told me one day Indians drop out of college. We've come a long way in, in a lot of ways because more is known about us, but there's also steps backwards. Public school systems, teachers are not allowed to teach about histories that cause any kind of discomfort. We know most of our 19th century <laughs> history <laughs> is going to cause great discomfort in people. Alyssa, I just love it, and, it's, and it really hits hard. I mean, you don't hold back, and, and your guests don't hold back, or, or the other women on the show. I mean, were any subjects off limits, or did you just go for it full time? There was a lot of planning that went into the editorial for the show, but you picked up on a good point that we did not hold back on the controversial nature of some of the topics that we touch on in the show, and I'm very proud of that. And and what are some of your your proudest moments from from the whole show and the interviews and discussions? One of my proudest moments is getting to sit with the first Alaska Native Congresswoman, Mary Poltola, when she got elected, I actually posted on LinkedIn that I would 
love to interview her and that happened to pop up in my memories yesterday and I screen took a screenshot of it because I was like, ooh, I manifested it. So that's a proud moment. And then it was also just very surreal sitting with the seven women with 10 cameras pointed at us with that much uh, production value going into giving us an opportunity to have these very important conversations that I believe mainstream America is not privy to. And so just a a few moments, perhaps when I was eating elk, like you'll see in the show, I was, (laughs) I I took a deep breath and just very grateful that that was happening. (laughs) Well, I'll tell you, Alyssa, I'm a little jealous here because we've been trying to get Mary Poltola on Native America calling for like ever, and we cannot get through. So you got that interview. Good job for that. And I hear she's kind of a tough interview too, is she? She is very strategic in her answers, and uh-huh. I will I will give the the credit to the NBC team and the way they pull um, in terms of how they know how to navigate with the powers that be over at the. Uh, the White House or the, or the Capitol in order to get the Batola interview. I, I, I probably wouldn't have been able to sing that either, Sean. So, <laughs> <laughs> Okay. All right. Well, listen, let's hear another clip. This, too, is about identity and gets into the subject of blood quantum. We hear from actor Amber Midthunder, who's best known for a lead role in the movie Prey. Then we hear Allie Redhorse Young, who is the founder of Protect the Sacred. Amber, with your sugar of Indian blood, there's like several different tribes listed. Mm-hmm. How do you make sense of your indigenous identity? It's really just the way that I was raised. And I definitely relate to like what Janae said and even like the experience of your mom because I didn't grow up on my reservation in Montana, but I did grow up with my culture and I grew up with my language and I grew up with ceremony. And so it has been an experience for me that like that was the most important thing in my life is to learn that culture and, and preserve that and do everything that I can to go out into the world and to spread it and to fight for it and to represent it well. Ali, that's all I knew growing up. I didn't travel for a very long time. And honestly, when I left my community and I met other Native people, I thought they were also Diné. <laughs> I think it's so interesting, this conversation around blood quantum. I personally feel in, in the youth work that I do, it's about embracing those that want to come back to community. One of the questions we talk about is identity and uh, how they define Indigenous. And I think it's so beautiful that many of them have said that it's about their relationship to the land. Also, it's about community and that you don't have to be in your ancestral homelands, but with that sense of community, they feel that their identity is indigenous, especially in the United States. This is really moving, Alyssa. And and I also want to ask, I mean, do you think viewers that see the show, they'll be able to get a better understanding of concepts like blood quantum as a result of the dialogue? I hope so. That The, the concept of blood quantum and the concept of indigenous identity is a topic that I consistently talk about through the various projects and work that I do because as a mixed race Clinket woman, I am uh, personally very interested in how we are going to um, preserve and maintain indigenous identity as our citizens continue to uh, intermix and intermarry over the next seven generations. And so uh, giving my guests on the show an opportunity to share their perspectives so that hopefully Americans could understand that asking us our blood quantum is not very appropriate and that our 
citizenship is based on descendancy through our family and also that it it tends to vary between the different tribes but it's just a it's a blood quantum is a hot button topic even within indian country and so for someone without outside of our community to ask us about it it can be very off-putting and so I, i hope that the complexity of that topic is um gets to be shined, has some light shined on it, even a little bit, and when in a forum that um, makes people feel like it's just educational instead of maybe um, combative. I do too, and, and I think you're going to get that. I, th- I think you definitely hit, hit the goal there. And Alyssa, I also know that, that going into this, uh, you put a lot of time and, and planning, and there was even a ceremony that was hosted by the Suquamish tribe. Can you talk about that? Oh, that was so amazing. Okay, so the Suquamish tribe, they're friends of our family. I grew up in the Seattle area. My dad has done legal work for them um, for a long time throughout his career as a federal prosecutor and tribal liaison for Western Washington. So when he called, uh, told me who to call at Suquamish, they were very excited to do a canoe awakening ceremony and have a canoe landing because it really brought their community together for, they said, one of the first times since the pandemic. And so the beginning of the show, I just think is stunning. And it shows up in the trailer a bit where the gorgeous Seattle sunny day, which we know is rare in PNW, is captured and the the canoe landing. And I asked permission to come on the lands of the Quamish people, which is significant because I'm also I'm in that moment, I'm hoping to convey to the audience that anywhere you go in America, you're on native land and it is customary to ask permission to come onto the lands of the the indigenous people, um, or at least if the people who are asked permission from are not present, then to at least do a land acknowledgement. So I hope that ceremony uh, really sets that tone and the understanding um, for viewers that you're always on native land. And also the salmon bake was just very tasty. So you can hopefully <laughs> see that I really enjoyed that. <laughs> I'll bet it was. Now, when will people be able to watch this, the public? The public will be able to watch it on Peacock um, on June 4th, which is right around the corner. And yeah, it airs on MSNBC. But as a someone who streams a lot, I'm going to watch it on Peacock. So <laughs> Okay. All righty. Well, Alyssa, I know you're just constantly moving around. You've got so many irons in the fire. Uh, what do you have coming up next? I am focusing on uh, on three books, Sean. Um, I, I published through, during the pandemic the Journey of the Freckled Indian, Clinkett Culture Story. Uh, but now with this platform, I have some more support around my passion for creating picture books. And the reason I like doing that is some of the concepts that are touched on in the show or just that I want to continue to convey the importance of to a a broader audience uh, can be better captured in a picture book format, no matter your age. And then I'm also going to work this summer on my first non-picture book, which is a nonfiction that really brings together the editorial that I worked on for the show since I got pretty deep in these topics. So I want that to go somewhere. Okay. And any more work coming up with MSNBC? Maybe Rachel Maddow needs some assistance with some Native perspectives, maybe? Ooh, uh, I I would love to. Sign me up. Uh, I know that this was a big opportunity in, in my career, but I also 
believe, for our community to have uh, an MSNBC and NBC fund a show that specifically spotlights our community. And so I guess my, my ask of our community is please watch it, get the ratings up, because uh, business is business, and the powers that be will invest in more Native content if they can see that uh, we are we are watching the content that has been created, and and the ratings support that. So I, I hope so, Sean. I hope that we're uh, on on your show in the future talking about the future projects that NBC is investing in, so that we can tell more um, more stories about Indian Country with, in, with this premium content um, approach. Because geez, those they really know what they're doing. It's very beautiful the way these they um, they shot this show. So I hope I hope people appreciate that. And it is part of a series, a, a larger series on, on women of color. So there are other perspectives as well. How many total episodes or shows are there as part of the whole series? Do you know, Alyssa? Yeah, the, it's the Culture Is series, and the Culture Is Indigenous Women is a part of a four-part um, series special. So the first one, Culture Is Black Women, premiered um, this last June. Culture Is Latina. Um, premiered in August, and then Culture is AAPI premiered recently in April, and all of those can currently be viewed on Peacock. So if you're fighting at the bit to understand how this show is going to be formatted, you can see how the format uh, was laid out for the other um, minority women featured specials, and then get a little idea of how the Indigenous women special will be, will be formatted. And I just got a note here across my desk. It, it sounds like you have a screening tonight there in L.A. Is that right? Ooh, uh, in a couple nights, yes. It's on June 1st, and we're doing a screening at the a theater near the NBC lot and was able to invite some friends and, and colleagues, and I'm excited to be able to share that with members of our community, members of the staff that worked on the show, and also be able to host a panel um, as several of the women that were on the show, not Poltola, <laughs> but <laughs> other women on the show uh, are going to fly into L.A. and I get to host a panel with them. So, <laughs> Well, we're really excited, Alyssa, uh, and I want to congratulate you again on, on this wonderful project, and just keep up the great work. We're so proud of you and happy for your success. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Sean. Proud of you, too. Keep it up with NEC. <laughs> All righty. All righty. Thank you, Alyssa. Well, folks, we are going to have to wrap up our show for the day, but I also want to offer up a big thanks to our other guests today, Sherry Rupert, Laura Blythe, and Richardson Etzidi for bringing us up to date on Native Tourism Summer 2023. Hope you'll join us again tomorrow on Native America Calling for a discussion about affordable Native housing in urban areas. Until then, have a fabulous rest of your day. Summer vacation time is here, and you're invited to get to know Albuquerque, New Mexico. The Mariachi Spectacular Concert and Conference brings vibrant artistic, cultural, and ethnic mariachi maestros to teach and share the culture of the music and its history. Legends such as Stefan Carrillo, Mariachi Cobre, and Jose Hernandez of Sol de Mexico provide a truly unique and extraordinary music and educational experience July 12th through the 15th. The Albuquerque Hispano Chamber of Commerce's Convention and Tourism Department supports this show. Support for this program provided by the American Indian Higher Education Consortium, the collective spirit and unifying voice of 37 tribal colleges and universities. 
For over 45 years, AHEC has worked to ensure that tribal sovereignty is recognized and respected and that tribal colleges and universities are included in this nation's higher education system. Information on a tribal college or university near you at AIHEC.org. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.